Welcome to the Wheel of Sports, home of the greatest sports stories ever told. My name's Ian McNally and with me... Matt Lavery, Matt Lavery! How's it going, Ian? Very well, Matt. Uh, I was a bit disconcerted the other day because we met up outside of the podcast as we occasionally... It's weird, isn't it? It's it's like seeing you in the wild. It's very (laughs) strange. In an unnatural habitat. (laughs) Well, let's not go into too much detail. Get the wheels spinning. Get the wheels spinning. And and we, we were dressed almost identically, which really disturbed me. It was like stroking a cat the wrong way. It was just... Made me feel a bit strange. That's fashion, man. That yeah. is fashion. I mean, we we're both dressed like we worked at Tesco. But uh, <laughs> the the topic for this episode is one of a kind. One of a kind. Ian, I'm going to take this one. I have a great one of a kind here. Um, it's a football, soccer-related, historical figure. You love a historical figure. I want to talk about Matt Busby uh, and his Busby Babes, the Manchester United football side. Uh, from the 40s and 50s. Matt, this is a story that I think I feel like I know a lot about because Matt Busby has been like an ever-present in the in the consciousness of the British soccer fan. Definitely. And has had reach across the world. And the Busby Babes as well, like the concept of the Busby, Busby Babes and like the, the great team that they were and the potential that they had. But when I'm actually thinking right now, could I do an episode on it? Absolutely not. I don't really know the details of this story, so and that's I'm really intrigued by this one. That's how I felt uh, preparing for this. It's so iconic, but yeah, there was so much I sort of didn't know. You know, we look at Manchester United now as this behemoth, uh, you know, hugely powerful and wealthy football side, you know, with global reach. Um, but during the 1930s, it really wasn't like that. Man United had been relegated twice. Uh, they were close to bankruptcy. And then during the Second World War in 1941, the Luftwaffe bombed Old Trafford. So United didn't have a home ground anymore that was usable. They had to move up the road to Main Road and and play at Manchester City's home ground of the time, Main Road. Manchester United, at this period, going into the 40s, were in all sorts. They're they're, they're not an attractive proposition. And to put that into context as well, a lot of clubs found themselves in a similar position after the war because you just lost your strongest healthiest men to Mm. a world war absolutely and to try and rebuild you know whether it be the grounds actually physically rebuild or to kind of rejuvenate some sense of what your club was or could be i suppose it was like you know if you look back too hard you you, you'd be depressed but out of the second world war came this great sense of optimism and like how humanity could be better and so how did it progress from there? Well, Busby had actually been, he's a Scot, but he'd been living in Manchester and, play for, and he spent eight years playing for Manchester City. Um, and he'd actually won the FA Cup with them in 1934. Um, during that time, Man United actually tried to sign him, um, but they couldn't afford the fee. So again, Man United not in any great shape. Um, so instead, he actually ended up moving uh, down the road to Liverpool, um, where he played for five years. But then the, the Second World War interrupted Busby's career he he goes off to fight, uh, and when he comes back, he doesn't play anymore, and he decides to go into coaching. Liverpool really want to bring him back as a coach, and they offer him the job. But Busby, Matt Busby, had become good friends with a guy called Louis Rocker when Man United tried to sign him in the 30s. Rocker was on the staff, and they'd built this good relationship through the church, and he actually ended up sending Busby a bit of a cryptic letter offering him a job 
without really specifying what it was because Louis Rocker knew that Liverpool uh, were sort of already offering him or in advanced stages of offering him a job. And they, he didn't want that letter being intercepted by somebody at Liverpool. So Was this like the forerunner to seek.com? It, it was a bit, it's very cryptic. LinkedIn yeah. message just slipping into the That's DMs. It, exactly, yeah, di- direct <laughs> messaging now uh, and all very cryptic. So Liverpool want to get him back, but Busby meets with the United fish, officials and he has a vision. And at this time, Man United are being managed uh, by a guy called Walter Crickmer, who's the club secretary and is just sort of filling in as manager. But Walter and Matt Busby share this vision of creating a club based on young players, I guess expansive, attractive football. But really, the key fundamental for Busby and his predecessor, the, the club secretary, Walter Crickmer, is all about promoting youth and developing players from within the club. He ends up meeting the the United officials and he gets offered a three-year deal, but he negotiates a five-year deal saying that's how long his revolution's going to take. He also demands that he has responsibility for training, picking the team and all of the transfers in and out of the club. And at this time... That kind of control just didn't really exist in English football. It was it, it did it did exist in Russia. <laughs> Stalin's five year plans. So there's so some similarities to be drawn. Wow. Straight into the wheel of controversial politics. But I, I actually love this idea because it's as you say, before this, presumably there was all different cogs to a wheel and nobody took that control of, of everything. No, absolutely, yeah. So you would have the trainer or the, the coach, but he wouldn't be the businessman sort of, you know, overseeing transfers. And then you might have somebody else who actually picked the team. So, so it'd be a very fragmented exactly, system without yeah. necessarily any harmony there. And Busby just, he, he said, look, I'm going to centralise it all. I want responsibility. Give me the deal. And United were so keen to get him on board. Manchester United were so so eager that they agreed to his terms. He got his five-year deal and all of the, the sort of power within the club. And the first thing he does is appoint his old army mate, Jimmy Murphy. And he puts Jimmy Murphy in charge of the reserves and gives him a, a special instruction, an instruction to pay special attention, rather, to all of the young players and, and the youth teams associated um, he also goes back to Walter Crickmer, who's gone back, who, who's returned to his full-time job as club secretary, and tells him to establish the Manchester United Junior Athletic Club, um, which is all aligned with Busby's vision of promoting youth all the way through. So, with Busby at the helm, the results are, are almost immediate. Within two years of taking over, he's delivered the club's first silverware by winning the FA Cup. Now, that's the first time they've won anything in over 40 years. Um, and yeah, bang, FA Cup. They're performing well in the league as well. Uh, they're runners-up at the end of the 46-47 season. They finish runners-up again in 48, 49 and 51. And then in 1952, he wins the league for the first time. And, you know, he, he's had such an incredible impact. But at this stage, he hasn't really had a chance to promote many young players. And this league-winning side in 52... You know, they're starting to age a little bit. He's had them since um, since 1947. So over the five years, those players have started to age. So he, so Matt Busby says, I need to start thinking about replacing these. And the expectation around, you know, all of the sports journalism at the time would be, well, they've just won the league. They've been runners-up a few years. They've got some, some money to spend. They're going to go out and spend big and attract players from other clubs. But he doesn't. 
he starts replacing his experienced players with players as young as 16 and 17 years old. Wow. Yeah. And so he's, he's created this ecosystem that is only beginning to pay off towards kind of the end of his five-year contract. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's taken, so high risk. <laughs> so, it's so mad, like, isn't it? To change the model in that way. Mm. But he's now bringing in players, as I say, 16, 17 years old. So this includes the right-back Bill Folks, centre-halves Mark Jones and Jackie Blanchflower, wingers Albert Scanlon and David Pegg, and the forward Liam William. Um, another one among them was uh, Duncan Edwards, who's still discussed now, even now, as probably one of the finest footballers of his generation. Um, he actually got capped. He was capped for England. He got into the England team when he was only 17 years old, which set a record which remained unbroken for more than 40 years until Michael Owen was capped uh, for England in 1998. You know, you'd rather go for a pint with Duncan Edwards as well. Oh, look. <laughs> Boring Michael Owen. <laughs> so during this period, Busby signs very few players. It's, it's a real rare example to find them. So a couple he does sign, Johnny Berry, uh, forward Tommy Taylor, and then a year or two later, Harry Gregg. Tommy Taylor's an interesting one because he creates a partnership. He's a forward uh, with the other forward, Dennis Violet. And for 27 games they played together, at least one of them scored a goal in 21 of those games. Um, wow. So yeah, you know, he's only having to bring in one or two players and he's just promoting through loads of teenagers and, and young lads. And in 1956, they go on to win the title again. And at that time, the average age of the team is only 22. And, and they run away with it. They actually, there's a nice bit of sort of uh, symmetry there in the sense that they secure the title on the 7th of April against Blackpool. Um, and Blackpool were the team that they beat in the FA Cup final back in 48 to secure that first ever uh, trophy and Busby uh, he describes the team uh, famously as having the marks of the nursery cradle still on them but those marks did not show which I just <laughs> love the poetry of that I also love that they've they've all got names like out of a comic book such <laughs> amazing names yeah this is this is one of the unusual uh, ones where I'm not struggling to pronounce, you know. Yeah, like <laughs> regular sh- listeners will know, you know that I'm often wrapping my tongue around some of these some of these names, but no, these ones are pretty pretty straightforward. I'd and, say, and they sound like uh, they're part of some sort of you know mafia splinter group, like Johnny Berry, Tommy Taylor, Harry Gregg, Dennis Violet. Great, I mean, it's that's superb. So it's 1956. They've just just won the league again. But Busby's not satisfied with dominating domestically. He wants a new challenge. So he, he f- pushes for Manchester United to be entered in to the relatively new European competition, the European Cup. Before this stage, though, um, presumably this ecosystem that Busby's created, they're winning prize money. They're getting a probably higher attendance gates. So they're getting more and more money into the club. But because they're not spending it on players... Presumably, they're just funding. The facilities are getting better. the The whole like absolutely um, spread of the club, the scouting system, etc. Presumably, is getting really well funded. Definitely, definitely. I mean, a lot of the players that you've mentioned there that that they're bringing through as teenagers and as young uh, footballers, a lot of them were from the Manchester region or the Greater Manchester region. But it would be a myth, and it'd be naive to say they were all from there. You know, they did sign young players 
from other clubs and, and move them to Manchester United, even as teenagers from, from other parts of the country as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. They, they had that, for, that infrastructure to invest and look outside of Manchester as well. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, whoever they're bringing in, with one or two key exceptions, they're all young lads. They're all teenagers and, and sort of into maybe the early, very, very early 20s. What a fun time as well if you're a teenage lad. And like, particularly after the Second World War. I mean, yeah. the previous generation has had to go to war and you get to go to Manchester <laughs> yeah. and, play, and play football exactly. in front of the adoring crowds dreams, in yeah. just a really exciting manner as well and with like the sense that you're going to go on to you know there's room for you to you know, really go on in this team that this promotion of Definitely. Is, there's just a there's such brilliant potential in this so much excitement well that's that's it that's that's definitely it and there's a belief in the club that that things are going to get better and um, because of the founding that they have and and that's a big part of why they're, they're uh, why Busby's so interested in taking Manchester United into the European onto the European stage. So UEFA, the European Football Association, had founded a European Cup in 1955, um, but the English Football Association had denied Chelsea, who'd been invited to play in it, access. The English Football Association, uh, or the English Football League, their secretary just didn't believe that participating in a European tournament would be best for for English football. Um, well, it wasn't what, Nigel Farage, was it? <laughs> no, no, again, <laughs> staying away from those those politics if I can. Um, no, I think I think a big part of it was probably uh, around advancing the national side, the England national team, and also a concern that. Travel probably wasn't that safe, international travel. And also, it could take a long time to get back. So if those players were playing overseas, you know, getting them home to to kick off on a Saturday would be quite difficult. You know, at this time, the games weren't being played at all sorts of times like they are now in the Premier League. It would be a Saturday kickoff at 3pm and that that was just what happened. So um, for that reason, yeah, the, the administrators of... The English Football League didn't really want their teams participating in this European tournament. So they denied Chelsea the opportunity in 55. But a year later, Man United pushed it through. And that was really forced by by Busby. And eventually sort of the Football League acquiesced and said, all right, off you go. But they weren't too happy about it. So it's United's first first go at Europe. The first team from England to actually play in Europe. And look, they did really well. Uh, they went over to Anderlecht. Uh, in Belgium, uh, won 10-0, uh, which to this day is Man United's greatest ever victory. They 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 got to the semi-finals. They were beaten 5-3 on aggregate by Real Madrid. But, you know, they, they're doing great at a European level. Um, and on a domestic front, they're still dominating. You know, one of their youngest talents, a, a young player called Bobby Charlton, um, he scored twice on his debut. But such was the riches and such was the quality in Busby's side. Despite getting two goals on his debut, he couldn't get back in the team. That sort of just demonstrated how good this side was. And as you said earlier, you know, they, they had the infrastructure and the, I guess, the pipeline of quality coming through. And in, that was sort of underlined by, in 1957, Manchester United's youth team won the FA Youth Trophy, which, again, just showcases that young quality. And people are looking going, wow, this side's dominating the league. 
and their youth team is dominating all the youth leagues. Like th- this team is setting itself up to have a real dynasty of of control here. And also, it's one of those things that even modern clubs struggle with. I could name some. Yeah, <laughs> but is this lineage of uh, system within your club from the youth are playing the same style of football as the senior team, and so it's a seamless. Um, trajectory through the through the system which many modern teams despite all their resource despite all their riches struggle to do yeah definitely and here it is in the 1950s in an amazing form so well that's it and look they win in 1957 as I say they've won the youth trophy they retain the league um, so they're champions again. Again, Taylor and Violet, the two forwards, are, are linking up remarkably well. But it's actually an Irish player, Liam Whelan, who finished as their top goalscorer of 26 goals. And they were almost, they were so close to being the first team uh, of the modern age to win the league and cup double. Um, they actually got all the way to the league, to the FA Cup final. As I say, they won the league uh, and were beaten in the FA Cup final 2-1 by Aston Villa. And Villa's winning goal was a shoulder barge, or it came from a shoulder barge, which ended up with the the goalkeeper, United's goalkeeper, Ray Wood, fracturing his cheek. And Peter McParland, the Villa forward, was sort of, he was a bit of a villain after that one, you know. He sort of, <laughs> it was a bit of a controversial moment. And people felt, well, it was only that, that rough stuff that prevented Manchester United from becoming, as I say, a totally dominant side and winning three pretty important trophies that year as well as the semi-finals of the European Cup because these are the days when you didn't have a substitute you know and you could legally charge the goalkeeper if the goalkeeper had the ball in both hands quite comfortably you could run up to him as fast as you can and shoulder charge him and hope the ball dropped and then kick it in the net if yeah it exactly did, which is quite a frightening prospect for the modern uh snowflake fan like myself <laughs> uh, which, but yeah wow yeah, so, it's, so they only missed out kind of uh, just they're, by they're that close. on the, yeah, they're, they're, on the double. And... They're, they're, they're really close. And um, the expectation is that it's just going to continue, you know, such as Matt Busby's confidence. He actually only signed one senior player that year, uh, a goalkeeper called Harry Gregg. Um, and they, they start the 1956-1957 season like any other. Um, they're on course for success in the league. They're on course for success in the FA Cup. And they're on course for success uh, in the European Cup. But that's when disaster strikes. On the 6th of February 1956, after a European Cup game against Red Star Belgrade, the plane stopped off in Munich to refuel. And after refueling, uh, the pilots James Fane and Kenneth Raymond twice abandoned taking off from Munich due to technical difficulties. So after the second failed attempt, all of the passengers, including all of the players, um, actually left the plane. And due to the heavy snow, uh, it actually looked like they weren't going to fly that night. Um, Duncan Edwards, uh, their, their young star, uh, he actually sent a telegram through to his landlady back in Manchester saying all flights have been cancelled, so we'll fly home tomorrow, Duncan. But there was pressure to get them back. And as I said, part of the reason the football league, the English Football League didn't want teams competing in Europe was because they thought that flying just wasn't that reliable. They weren't sort of confident enough that those teams would be back to honour their domestic fix- fixtures on a Saturday at 3pm. And and probably they'd been found to be fairly right in their predictions because actually in the previous round, Manchester United had played away. This time they played Dukla Prague in Prague. Uh, but their flight home ended up being diverted due to bad fog in England. They were diverted to Amsterdam, then had to get a ferry from Amsterdam to Harwick 
and then a train from Harwick to Manchester. Now, they made the kickoff on the Saturday, but that journey must have taken its toll. And, and United ended up drawing three all with Birmingham City. Um, and I guess there's a pressure from within to, to sort of not, 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 not accept that, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. You know, they wanted to be there and that Matt Busby had uh, been a big advocate of embracing the European tournament. And that, but they, they sort of want to get back and there's, there's pressure on the pilots. There's pressure sort of within, you know, they, they felt obliged. Uh, as I say, the, the players all got off um, they're looking to stand, spend the night in Munich. But then there's a conversation between one of the station engineers, a guy called Bill Black, who recommended to the captain that they call it off for the night and leave the plane uh, for them to have a look at. Um, but Captain Thane is anxious to get back. He doesn't want to fall behind schedule. So he rejects staying overnight in Munich and they attempt to to take off for a fair time. So about 15 minutes after getting off the plane, all of the passengers, including the players, get back on. And then tragically, the plane crashed uh, during that attempted third takeoff. 23 people were killed, including eight players and three members of the, the club staff. Jeff Bent, Roger Byrne, Eddie Coleman, Duncan Edwards, Mark Jones, David Pegg, Tommy Taylor and Billy Whelan were the eight players killed in the crash, along with Walter Crickmer, the club secretary, Tom Curry, the trainer and Bert Wally, the chief coach. They were all killed. In addition to that, two other players, Johnny Berry and Jackie Blancheflower, never played again due to injuries sustained during that tragedy. Um, it's this is a remarkable tragedy. It's, it's so so sad that these players, uh, as we said a bit earlier about the excitement of playing for Manchester United, the excitement of being together, coming up from a youth system together, which was very rare, or coming from different parts of the United Kingdom to play for the, for a team uh, that has such a positive and, and is going to represent the country, really, going mm. to Europe and, and showing what, what's happening in the northwest of England. Uh, it, it's uh, You can't really find words. That, and it must have been such a terrifying experience for the individual players as well. And though, that those um, those players who survived, I mean, the, the, the toll on them in terms of either not being able to play, but also the psychological trauma of, of um, you know, that guilt that you'd survive as guilt. Well, and and definitely. it's a dread, just a dreadful, dreadful tragedy. For no, the you're club right. And, and it, it, but it's, it, it, for some of them, I mean, it, it's, awful like Matt Busby is so seriously injured that he spends two months in hospital during this period he's read the last rites twice you know so he's critical oh. um but he's so seriously injured that the doctors didn't think he was strong enough to hear about the extent of the tragedy so they kept it from him and it was only when he asked a Franciscan friar about how Duncan Edwards was was faring the Franciscan friar didn't realize that it was supposed to be a secret. So he told him Duncan Edwards is dead. And that's how he finds out the truth. And then Busby's wife, Jean, comes in and, and has to tell him about all of the other players and all the other officials. Busby's racked with guilt. You know, it's, he's the one who's gone against the will of the Football League. He's the one who he feels, well, I didn't challenge that pilot's decision to take off a third time. And then on top of that, now his wife's told him the truth. But there's other people like Johnny Berry who sustained injuries so seriously that he'll never play again, who doesn't know about the other players as well. And Johnny Berry's complaining to Matt Busby that his friend Tommy Taylor's not really that good a friend because he hasn't come in to visit. But Tommy Taylor's dead. 
And Matt Busby's then under pressure not to tell him because they're worried about the impact that'll have. But to me, it's like that that's surely worse, you know, mm-hmm. to, to keep somebody in the dark and then let them find out later after you've cursed him for not being a good friend. It's it's just so so dark like it's it's awful and I, th- I think the because of the the run-up to it in terms of busby nurturing these boys mm. they're all so young it, yeah it's like all my sons it's yeah. like that he's, he's taking this project on which is kind of one thing in a in a corporate sense um but it it's not is it's about the personalities about the nurturing the 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 love and care that you would have to show these individuals to to bleed them into the system and the team mm. and then to find that this is you know just being it's it's beyond words oh, I, it's just mad. it's so tragic I, i'm interested in uh you know wh- like how does a team how does a, a club an organisation possibly recover from this? Well, that, well, that's it. I mean, look, whilst Busby's lying in hospital, he his old assist, his old uh, army mate, uh, Jimmy Mer- Jimmy Murphy, um, his assistant manager. Jimmy Murphy was actually working as the Wales manager as well, and as a result, he hadn't gone to Belgrade for this game. So Murphy comes to his bedside, and and Busby sort of tells him, "Look, try and keep the flag flying first, Jimmy." But the club's facing huge issues. You know, there's speculation it's going to have to fold. You know, they haven't got enough players. They're able to field a threadbare side for the remainder of the season. They actually played just 13 days after the crash. And two players who'd survived the crash actually uh, took part in that game. I mean, it's so soon afterwards. Duncan Edwards was, was still alive in hospital and died just 24 hours after that game. It was an FA Cup match against Sheffield United, which miraculously... Uh, Man United won three nil, but you know it's a scratch side. They end up uh, they're they're able to bring some players in. Uh, Ernie Taylor signs from Blackpool, Liverpool, who are Un- Manchester United's sort of most famous rival, actually loan them five players. Three uh, players sign from a non-league side called Bishop Auckland. It, they really are just sort of trying to get to the end of the season. Like, between uh, the crash and the end of the season, United actually only won one league game. Uh, and they've got they fall away from being title contenders to finish ninth in the league, but it's almost just remarkable that they they could even finish finish the season having lost more than half of their their first team. But you know it, 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 it's sort of remarkable because despite the obviously the challenges that this would face, just on a, from a sporting perspective, they still reached the FA Cup final. Um, and a frail Busby was there to to actually take play, his place on the bench. I mean, look, they they lost two nil to, to Bolton in the final, but you know that must have been a really emotional day. Um, also, they're still in the European tournament. You know, they they'd actually beaten Belgrade, and uh, they they wanted to honour their fixtures. They they actually beat AC Milan at Old Trafford. I mean, they lost four nil at the away leg, but just the fact that they're even taking part in these games, like, mm-hmm. just shows incredible fortitude and and, and bravery, tenacity, I suppose, yeah. tenacity from these players, these survivors, and and also the officials around the club that that would have been there and known, you know, uh, never mind the dead ones, but Barry and Blanche Flower, who are just so seriously injured they can never play again. It's really, really emotive stuff. But look, the season ends, Busby starts to recover, uh, and he actually takes on full managerial duties from the start of the following season, which was 1958-1959. And from there on, he actually 
started to build a second generation of Busby Babes because I guess through his infrastructure that he'd put in place with his youth teams, with his talented young, you know, even younger players who weren't on that plane, it wasn't too much longer before he could start promoting those kids up, you know, once they reached the age of 17, 18, 19, and then they're in the team. Yeah, 10 years later, on the 29th of May in 1968, 10 years after the Munich air disaster, Manchester United win the European Cup, uh, beating two times Benfica 4-1. And this side, this Man United side that, that goes on to win this, it's got you know legendary names of Manchester United like George Best and Dennis Law. But Bill Folkes, he was on that plane. He's in that team, as is Bobby Charlton, now the captain. He was that young lad who scored two goals on debut. He's now captaining the side. And, and uh, you know, fittingly, they're still a young team. There's a young lad called Brian Kidd, who's a, who's a striker from Collyhurst, which is just outside of Manchester. Well, Dennis Law's injured for the final, so they, they put Brian Kidd in. It's his 19th birthday, and he scores Manchester United's third goal. Another Collyhurst boy, a, a lad called Nobby Styles, he plays uh, and becomes one of two Englishmen to win both the European Cup and the World Cup. The other being, obviously, Bobby Charlton. There's also another player uh, called John Austin Jr., whose father had actually played in Matt Busby's FA Cup winning side in 1948. And he got man of the match. I mean, it's just so poetic. Such an incredible idea that, yeah, 10 years after this, you know, the, the, the phoenix has risen and you've got all these players so associated with the club playing for them and uh, making a massive impact. I think it's amazing there, the names that you say at the end are so familiar, like Nobby Styles, Brian Kidd, Bobby yeah, Charlton. It's crazy, I isn't mean, it? George Best, Dennis Law. Yeah, they are just in uh, not just Manchester United folklore, but football, football. folklore. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, world football folklore. They, they're some, uh, I know Charlton went on to break a lot of records and, um, you know, certainly... Um, you know, George Best. I mean, <laughs> we're just, we do an episode on him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so this is one of these stories, Matt. I'm so glad that you brought this story because it's one of those stories that can very much get skewed over time. A story that people are aware of that's in the past, but don't know the detail of and don't know. And the way you tell that story there, that the personalities behind it, the, the concept behind Busby's vision I mean, he, he truly is one of a kind. Oh, absolutely. And what an amazing uh, story just, uh, you know, to have in that post-war period as well, to have that vision uh, and also to have that great success as well and uh, marred by that terrible, terrible tragedy as well. Yeah. But what a great story. Oh, it, it really is. It's It's difficult to even... You know, I'm not a Manchester United fan by any stretch, but it's. I grew up not being very <laughs> fond of them growing up in Merseyside. <laughs> but it it just feels like so emotional when you when you hear about you know even just players like John Austin Jr. who I'm not I'd never heard of before, you know to know that his dad played in the 1948 final and now he's winning the European Cup and you know there's people there who you know close friends and colleagues would have died uh, as part of this story. It's just unbelievable. And um, yeah, Matt Busby, absolutely one of a kind. You know, he, he resigned the following year, but he remained at Manchester United as a director for years after. And uh, yeah, it's just absolutely incredible story. The word legend is uh, bandied around a lot often, but Matt Busby, legend. I reckon he's a legend, isn't he? Nice one. Um, thanks, Matt. That is truly one of the greatest sports stories ever told. Uh, 
Thanks for listening to The Wheel of Sport. And make sure you get in touch with us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Any feedback, any uh, reviews you can leave wherever you get your podcast really helps get to other listeners as well and share the podcast with uh, people who you think might be interested in it as well. That would be lovely. And you can certainly get in touch with us at uh, thewheelofsport at gmail.com or through Instagram at thewheelofsport and Twitter as well in the same way. We'd definitely love to hear from you and uh, any suggestions for episodes or just some nice Nice words, maybe. We love a kind word. Look, if you've got, if you're a fact checker as well, you might not get a reply. But thanks for the contact anyway, <laughs> and uh, thanks so much for listening to the Wheel of Sport. Really appreciate it. Thank thanks. you so much. Thanks, man. Bye. I think the whole, the old uh, scene of the tragedy is a bad memory all throughout because it concerns quite a number of people and a lot of people who I had a great respect for and regard for. It's a very sad time for me uh, because uh, it's a situation and a position and a, a way that uh, I will never, never forget.